Welcome to the Sand Hills Media Ministry. We hope this production encourages and challenges you to live a more Christ-centered life. Welcome to episode three of season three of the Sand Hills podcast. As we continue to dive into current events, we thought it would be interesting to talk about October 31st, which when I say that date, your first thought might be Halloween, but we wanted to bring in a new aspect to the conversation. October 31st is the same day as the celebration of the Reformation, which happened over 500 years ago. And so we brought in Shelley Vivian to have this conversation with us all the way from Western Australia and Perth, where uh, she and her husband uh, lead a church and where she teaches at Rayaboth Christian College and she teaches church history. And so we uh, got connected with her and she and I had an incredible conversation that we're so excited for you guys to listen in on, uh, to learn more about what the Reformation is, how it reaches out to us and impacts us over 500 years later. Now, even though we're talking uh, in a different hemisphere on the other side of the globe, uh, and we got to have that conversation, there were some audio difficulties that happened with that. So if you could give us uh, grace with that, you'll probably hear a few moments where it sounds a little choppy or where it cuts out for a second. Uh, just uh, have patience with that as we uh, compile the audio together. It's an incredible conversation. We look forward to you getting to enjoy it as much as we did. And we're happy that this conversation is happening on the Sand Hills Podcast. No, the only time you're really going to be free and fulfilled is when, as a created being, you begin to walk in the way that he's created you to operate. But what you do need to do is just be a faithful representation of what you believe. Live it, live it boldly, don't hedge on anything, and just simply be who you are for the sake of Christ and the gospel and the church. And don't think about it in terms of like, did I make sure that they understood that I think they're wrong? In every generation, we need to evangelize the church. There is no Christian culture. Christianity is the message of God's Son sacrificed on the cross for our salvation. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, are we going to choose him or not? And I often tell people, people don't leave church because of God. Mm -hmm. They leave because of other people. Awesome, Shelly. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. We're really excited to talk about, uh, you know, as we look at current events for this season and, and kind of dealing with those things. We talked about uh, Columbus Day and Indigenous Peoples Day that happened here in the U.S. Uh, just uh, last week. And now we're looking at what happened um, on the 31st, Halloween, right? So Halloween's big uh, in the U.S. Is it big in Australia? Uh, it is. It has gotten big. I grew up here in Australia, and when I was a kid, nobody celebrated Halloween. It just was not done. Really? Um, and uh, it's kind of become more of a thing here now. The, the, there's a few kids that will come by and want um, candy or lollies, as they say here. Lollies. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah, got to say lollies. And uh, but it's kind of interesting because it's something that Christians do not participate in hmm. here. That's um, most Christians are, are quite opposed to to Halloween. Um, but I think because so much of it is, is linked to quite scary stuff, the kids' costumes are very scary here and you don't see them, you know, dressed in little princess costumes right. or firemen, <laughs> any of that kind of thing. Um, I still hand out candy because I don't want to be the mean lady on the, in the neighborhood who <laughs> doesn't hand out candy. I'd right. rather let them go to my house and yeah. eat somebody nice. Yeah. <laughs> 
And it's it's I was fascinated when I was doing a little bit of re- research into this, where it's Reformation days on the same day as Halloween. When I first found that out, it kind of blew my mind. Where I was like, oh, I I'd like I'd never heard of Reformation Day. You know, I grew up hearing about Halloween. Obviously, get to dress up as Batman and get some candy yeah. from the, all the neighbors and go into sugar <laughs> high and get crazy. You know, it was awesome. Right. Yeah. And then when I was in college, I heard it was the the 500th anniversary, uh, in that was 2017. 2017. 2017 yeah, was. I like, was actually. In, I went to Germany for the 500th anniversary. Oh wow, yeah. man! Where it all started with Martin Luther, right there. Wow. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so uh, some of our audience might this might be new news for them as well that the Reformation Day is on the same day as Halloween, um, which you know comes right before All Saints Day, um, and kind of the historical link there. So we'll just kind of we're gonna talk about that, get some background information. So just kind of you know. It's a huge question, but what was the Reformation? <laughs> uh, well, so the Reformation, uh, it's it, sometimes it's hard to pin down. And if you read it from various people, you'll, you know, hear things like, oh, it's a movement of, of this, or it was a rebellion against this or, or whatever. But really what it was, was a renewed understanding of the gospel. It was a return to uh, the message of the gospel, mm. uh, a return to the authority of the Bible um, and uh, really, it was a spiritual rebirth for the church. So uh, it happens in the 16th century or the 1500s, if, if that's an easier one to, <laughs> to, to remember. Um, we kind of think about it starting uh, being more in Europe than in anywhere else, uh, at least at the time. Uh, and it's led by a number of, of people, a, a number of reformers. So we're going to probably spend more time talking about Martin Luther. But really, it's important for everybody to know that it's there's actually hundreds of people that we could talk about who were mm. um, part of this. <laughs> Sorry about that. A little technical difficulties here. Uh, but but please continue. So, I mean, you just talked about that idea of there are hundreds of people we could talk about. And there were Catholics uh, who had come, you know, long before Martin Luther who were trying to bring in some like, hey, let's maybe think of this doesn't quite sound biblical. Let's talk about this. Uh, but what what set yeah. Martin Luther apart? How was this kind of the how was he the spark that seemed to light the powder keg? Yeah, so I mean, like you said, there were a lot of people um, prior to Martin Luther who were who were doing things. I I, I like uh, there's a there's a monument in um, in Germany in the city of Worms where uh, Martin Luther is standing at the top of the monument and surrounding him are four guys. And these four guys at each kind of corner of the of the monument are sort of these pre-reformers. So um, people like John Wycliffe, who who really um, brings the idea of the Bible being for all people, you know, because he translates the Bible into English, and a guy by the name of Jan Hus, a Bohemian guy mm. who who looks at the practices of the church, um, a guy named Savonarola from Italy who looks at the abuses of the church, and um, another man from the 12th century called Peter Waldo, a Frenchman who um, talks about kind of good, solid preaching. Mm. So those four men are sort of representative of that pre-Reformation movement. But Martin Luther uh, comes along. It's kind of the Reformation starts more officially, if you like, with um, this event that happens in 1517. So Martin Luther, he's an Augustinian monk. Um, He's there in, in sort of what we would consider the eastern part of Germany, but at the time it was the Holy Roman Empire, um, he had uh, he was he had been a uh, a law student and um, um, he got caught in a thunderstorm one night and uh, he he was terrified. People in those days didn't understand what was going on with that. And he said, 
you know, prayed if, uh, not to God. He didn't pray to God. He prayed to a saint, Saint Anne, and he said, "If you'll save me, I'll become a monk." So he had become a monk. Um, he was a really brilliant um, uh, young man, but very obsessed with the idea of his sin and never feeling like he had um, really been would, could really be forgiven of it. Mm. Um, but he goes on to become a professor uh, in a in a university. So he's still a monk, but he's teaching as uh, monks did sometimes uh, in a university in a little backwater town in Germany called Wittenberg. And uh, he becomes a very popular professor, but he's teaching he's teaching the Bible. And as he reads the Bible, he kind of he comes. Okay, so um, there was this thing that was going on at the you know there in fifteen seventeen where there was this other monk named um, John Tetzel, and he is selling this thing called an indulgence. And an indulgence was essentially a piece of paper uh, that you could get sponsored by the Pope or, or provided by the Pope. And um, it let you kind of transfer the good deeds, the good works of the saints, the people that were really holy, uh, that they considered to be really holy, uh, to your account. And that would get you out of purgatory sooner. Nice. Um, and yeah, it's, it, was a, it was a good deal. Um, and uh, so, you know, you could, you could buy this indulgence and then it could be transferred to your account. But what was even better for some people was that you could buy an indulgence for, you know, your dead relative. And so, you know, there's dear departed, um, you know, grandma in uh, suffering there in purgatory, paying off the penalty for her sins. And you don't really want your grandma suffering there in purgatory. So, you know, you can buy an indulgence and, and get her out of purgatory. So John Tetzel, this other monk was there selling these indulgences and he was a great salesman. He had this little, um, had this little jingle and it would go, Every time a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. I mean, it's, it was just really wow. catchy. And so people were, were buying these indulgences. And the thing about this particular indulgence was that it wasn't just saying, oh, well, you know, this will give you 2,000 years off of purgatory. It was what was called a plenary indulgence. So it was full. It would get you, it was like a get into heaven free card. More wow. Or less. So it was really popular, as you can imagine. Um, well, Luther hears about this guy. Now, it's not happening in his town, but he knows that some of the people from his church are actually going to buy this indulgence. And he's not real far along in his thinking yet. So at the moment, he doesn't object to the idea of the indulgence as such, but he thinks that what's wrong about it is first that you're buying it. That's mm. kind of seems not quite right. But also that he said, really, when you repent of your sins, there need, well, there needs to be repentance from your sins. It can't just be you buy a piece of paper and, you know, that yeah. kind of gives you the license to go out and do whatever you want. There has to be actual sorrow for your sins. And the more he reflects on it, sort of the angrier he gets. So he writes this document um, where he lists 95 things that um, he sees that are a problem uh, with with these indulgences, it's basically an argument, and he writes it in Latin uh, because he intends to have a, a debate with other scholars. Right. And uh, the story is, at least, that he walks down from his monastery in Wittenberg, and it's I've walked it. It's a, it's only about a um, 15, 20 minute walk mm. from his monastery down to uh, the castle church, which was the church of the prince of the town. And uh, the story is that he nails this 95 theses to the door 
of Wittenberg Church, which I, I wouldn't recommend you do at your church, probably. They <laughs> probably wouldn't like it. They wouldn't like it at mine because mine's made of glass. The same. It just <laughs> shatter it instantly. That's, that's it. But it was kind of the bulletin board uh, of the day, you know, so seeing seeing someone post something on the door wouldn't have been that unusual in itself. Mm -hmm. And most people wouldn't have been able to read it because it was written in Latin. So in some ways, uh, it shouldn't have caused that much of a stir. Um, what he was actually objecting to was an abuse of a system. And he thought for sure, if, uh, you know, if his bishop or if the Pope knew what this John Tetzel was doing in this abuse and trying to, you know, sell off this indulgence without it really asking for repentance, he thought for sure they would, they would stop it. Um, and he has no idea it's going to set off the firestorm that it actually does. Yeah. And it's not only is, you know, is the Pope and the bishops on board with what Tetzel's doing, but they desperately need the money to be financing the grand nature of their, uh, of the Vatican and what's going on there. Oh, I don't think she's able to hear me now. Can you hear me now? Uh, yeah, I can hear you now. There we go. All right. Yeah. Back to live action. Back in it again. I was just saying that um, that not only were the, the bishops and the Pope aware of what Tetzel was doing, but they needed him to be doing it to be financing all the artwork projects going on in the Vatican and the grand lifestyle of those bishops and the grand lifestyle of the Pope uh, and how expensive their lifestyle was. They needed uh, this money. Yes, that's right. I mean, they, they, they were using the sale of indulgences in a, in a number of places, but this particular one in was uh, important to them. So Luther's bishop, who was um, a guy by the name of Albert, he was the bishop of um, Brandenburg, and he wanted to become the bishop of Mainz, the archbishop of Mainz, because that was a really lucrative position. Um, and, the, and he wasn't supposed to be bishop of more than one place. So he had to get the Pope's permission to do that. Um, and he, uh, he had asked for permission, and he got it if he paid a certain amount of money to the Pope. Uh, now, he didn't really have the money for that, so he had borrowed money to pay the Pope. And the Pope agreed that he could, uh, said that you can, you can sell this indulgence, I get half of it, and you can have half of it and pay off your debt. Um, the Pope really wanted the money because he was uh, building St. Peter's Basilica that we all see wow. in, in the Vatican. It was being rebuilt, and uh, he wanted to build have it rebuilt under his watch and kind of under his name. So that's what he wanted the money for. So they did know about this indulgence. Um, and but Luther wasn't aware of the sort of the backroom dealings that was going on. So we don't really know for sure that he actually that Luther actually nails the 95 theses that that story is told about 30 years later by one mm. of his good friends. Um, we know that he mailed a copy of the, the thesis to his bishop on that day. Mm -hmm. um, and he very well may have taken a, you know, a paste pot and um, glued, <laughs> right. glued the thing. But somehow that, you know, nailing it to the door is just so much more of an effective story. <laughs> yeah. And when, when, you go, when you Google it and you type in, you know, Martin Luther, and one of the first pictures is this defiant looking Luther with a hammer in his hand. And, and he's looking at the crowd and he's got the paper up there and as if everyone knows everything that's happening. And so you kind of see this um, kind of Christian mythology rising around uh, this this yeah. hero of the faith that we look at. And so is there any significance to it happening? Did it happen on October 31st then? Is that the same yeah. kind of right before 
what what is the significance to that date? Was that intentional or just like, oh, this is the day I decided to write it? Uh, I think, I mean, there there is some connection. I, I can't say that I think about it that much, um, <laughs> to be honest with you, but there is there is a connection. Um, the connection is actually what's happening the next day, which is All Saints Day mm. on the 1st of November. So All Saints, uh, I should say the 31st of October is actually an old Celtic um, thing, the day, kind of a day of the dead kind of idea where the, the dead were supposed to come back and roam the earth. And about the and about the 800s, the church had sort of co-opted that as a feast, and um, they made it the first of November about celebrating all the saints. Mm. So instead of celebrating, you know, so we have Saint Patrick's Day and Saint this day and whatever. Right. This was supposed to be the All Saints Day when all of them would be celebrated. And and the next day after that is called um, All Souls Day, and All Souls Day remembers all the people not the saints, but all the people who have died and are now suffering in purgatory. So it was mm. a day to pray for their souls. So um, usually what happened on All Saints Day, at least in Wittenberg, was that um, you would go to the church on All Saints Day. Um, and the reason you would go is because the prince of Wittenberg had this massive relic collection. So a relic could be a um, it could be something that... Uh, was owned by the, the saint or it could be a bone or it could be a piece of the true cross or something like that. It's, and he has 19,000. Some of them are things like he claims to have a, a feather from an angel. Uh, you know, he's got vials of Mary's milk. He's got, um, he's got wow. the cloud that Jesus disappeared. He's got a little vial that contains the cloud that Jesus went up to heaven in. I mean, it's, it's kind of crazy, but wow, that's an impressive was, collection. <laughs> it is. It, it, he had a catalog. There was a catalog that was printed by the best known printer in the, in the city named Lucas Cranach, who was also a great artist, but the famous pin, picture of Luther that you see is painted by this guy named Lucas Cranach, but he was also a printer. And he, um, he prints the relic collection catalog. But anyway, what you would do is you would go to church and you'd walk around the tables and see these relics and you'd pay to see them. And uh, all of them, you got almost 2 million years off of purgatory. So it was wow. a good deal. Lucrative yeah, good deal. 2 million years. Two million, 2 million years, which makes you wonder how many years you'd actually be in there anyway. But um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and how you'd know, I have no idea. But uh, so it's it's why this uh, other monk Tetzel wasn't allowed to sell his indulgence in Wittenberg. The prince didn't want him there because uh -huh. he wanted the people to come to his relic collection and pay money for that. Wow. So um, probably Luther puts up the 95 theses on the day before because he knows that there's going to be people coming to the church mm. on the next day. Plus, on All Souls Day, they would be praying for the souls in purgatory, and that's directly related to the idea of indulgences. Anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And then uh, as this uh, comes out with the Reformation now seeming to kind of kickstart in this, now it's not an instant, and, you know, you kind of think of, a, we think in revolutionary, you know, in the U.S., you know, we, you know, throw some tea into a harbor, and now we're at war, and the, this is how it works. <laughs> Uh, you know, and it's very, very quick. But what was the real time frame? Like, when did this really get going? When did a movement start? When did separations begin? 
Yeah, so it, in some ways it starts quite quickly. Within a month, certainly the theses had been translated. They were um, printed on Gutenberg's, you know, Gutenberg's printing press is only about 50 years old at this point. And um, it had been printed and distributed. And so pretty much right away within the next, um, he's he's called to a, to a debate um, in, in the next six months and where he has to sort of defend himself. And over the next two years, essentially, he's going to have to um, spend time defending you know, his authorities and, and those kinds of questions are going to be raised. Um, in 1521, so three, uh, what's that, four years after he, he does the 95 Theses, he is actually having to stand in front of the emperor and um, uh, he's called to account. He's told he has to take back, recant all of his writings. Um, that's, that's the famous what we call the diet of worms, mm -hmm. um, which always sounds kind of disgusting uh, <laughs> as though they're eating worms there. But of course, it's actually, it's um, the diet of varms um, mm -hmm. because it's, it's the meeting of the, of, it's the official meeting of the emperor and his princes and officials and um, in the city of Worms in Germany. But there he makes his famous speech and he says, um, you know, my conscience is held captive to the word of God mm. and um, you can't go against your conscience. That's not right or safe. And he says, I won't retract or recant anything that I've said. And then whether he actually said this bit or not, we all claim it, you know, here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. He's mm. declared an outlaw at that point. And um, he really, by rights, should have been arrested almost then and there. But he had been given safe passage. So they let him head back and he's got a few days to sort of decide if he's going to change his mind. Um, but his prince kidnaps him. Uh, it's an amazing story. Kidnaps him and takes him off to his castle and he's hidden away in his castle for the next 10 months. Um, so, and his prince actually, because his prince is in a fairly high position and has the authority to elect emperors, um, he's able to protect him. And Luther actually doesn't ever get arrested or, you know, you know, wow. killed like many of the other reformers found themselves in trouble uh, he's fairly protected yeah. interesting and this um, is but the, it does separate and this is the same prince who was uh with the 1900 and you know collection that's the one wow. same one um, interestingly uh, the, the reason is that uh, i don't know how much he actually believed what luther was teaching because by the time he goes to to varms uh, luther is now not only talking about indulgences, that's kind of a well-passed issue. He's now on to thinking about the authority of the church versus the authority of scripture. Um, he's talking about justification by faith alone. Um, that's going to be his big rallying cry. And those are the issues now that um, are really getting him in trouble mm. uh, with the church. But the prince really likes him because, he, you know, Luther is, is the, one of his professors at his university that he started so the university had only been going since 1505, and he's this kind of hit professor that everybody loves, and everybody's now coming to his university, and so he doesn't want to lose that. Hmm. Yeah, Very interesting. So we kind of get uh, now into this phase where reformation's happening. There are outlaws, and there are people who, um, you know, one side is looking to destroy, and the one side's looking to protect and uplift, and you we have a schism now in the church. We'll wait one second here. Her hand, though, she can't hear me. Yeah. Uh, all right. We're all right now. Now we're back. Now we're back. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So it's just that, again, we were now on a side where there's a schism, where there's one side trying to destroy the other, and there's one side trying to protect 
what the other is trying to destroy, and there are government forces involved now trying to protect their interests and protect what they think yeah. is right. Uh, and so now we have a full-blown movement going. And yeah. so then this movement's going to take well past Luther uh, to get yeah. sorted out. And so what we're, as we kind of talk about the Reformation at large now, um, starts in 1517. About what time would you say that the Reformation is pretty settled and, and people understand now, okay, there's there are Christians, but now there are two types of Christians? Yeah, I would say that uh, probably in the, over the next 50 or so years um, after that event, um, it's pretty well established that that's, that, that is the case. Um, probably it's not going to be really set as those separate churches really until the end of the century. So I, I think of the, the Reformation as definitely being the whole of the 16th century. So after, after the uh, 16th, you know, in that 16th century, we see the Reformation moving across Europe and it's uh, going to sort of be different in different parts of Europe. You can talk about the English Reformation or the French Reformation um, and how it's going to change things through, through all of that. But consistent across all of those Reformations is the message of the Reformation, which is um, sometimes we sum it up by these uh, five solas. We talk about these five truths that that the reformers all talked about in one way or another. A sola just means alone, like you would sing a solo means alone. Mm -hmm. um, so we talk about faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, scripture alone, and um, to the glory of God alone. Yeah, so that, that's really the, those are the principles really that are gonna be true of the Reformation uh, the Reformation everywhere. And how successful the Reformation is in different places is going to vary uh, from place to place. Um, so it's it's very successful if you think about it in, in say, the whole what's called the Holy Roman Empire, the Germany kind of area, mm -hmm. um, because Lutheranism gets really established there. In France, it seems like it's going to be uh, go well, and then it doesn't. It pretty much is is gone. Um, certainly by the 1700s, it's gone. And, um, and then, you know, England, of course, it continues, but in a slightly different way, because it doesn't start with a reformer, it starts with a king who wants to break from the, from the Roman church, um, over the ability to say what he wants in his marriages. Yeah, so what were some of these points? So we talk about, you know, nearly 100 or so years of, of history, what are some of the high points of the Reformation we kind of talked about with these these great, you know, the the Diet of Worms, and he's talking and he's, you know, declaring these incredible truths that he's translating scripture while he's hidden away in a castle, and he's, uh, you know, doing all these great things. But what were some of the low points of the Reformation? What are the things we kind of look back on and we're like, oh man, we really thought that Luther, the guy who's declaring these amazing truths, would have, you know, risen to a better occasion? Or are there any low points like that that happen? Sure. Um, <laughs> I mean, uh, when you say low points, that my mind automatically goes to all the burnings at stake that happened for the reformers, yeah. which my students always are very fascinated by. I hate, I hate to say, but um, I don't know if that's really a low point in some ways. It's it's not a fun, certainly not a fun thing. But uh, I think about how God sustained those people and and brought them to that point and gave them courage and to to be able to stand up. But I think there are some low points. I think one of the disappointing things that we see in the Reformation is a, an Ill, inability for some of the reformers to get along mm. uh, and to work together. So uh, the one that immediately comes to mind is that there is another reformer who's working at the same time as Luther. I mean, they come to their conclusions almost 
at the same time, a man by the name of Ulrich Zwingli, who's in, um, in Switzerland, in Zurich. And he comes to the same truth in a little different way, but um, very, very similar. And um, there is some thought that they can actually work together. So there's a meeting where they, they come together and they cannot agree on the Lord's Supper. Uh, they've got 15 points to discuss at this meeting and they agree on 14 of them, but they cannot agree on the Lord's Supper. And um, Luther refuses to even acknowledge that Zwingli is a Christian and wow. um, kind of kind of walks away from that meeting. And it's a real lost opportunity because it's not too long after that that Zwingli um, is, is killed in battle. There is a, a Protestant versus Catholic um, war that goes on in the Swiss uh, region, and he's killed. And I think because the, the argument had never been resolved, Zwingli's followers never feel like they can um, make up with Luther's followers. And so they never really resolve that. And I think that's, um, I think that's really kind of a, a sad thing. Um, I, I would say another kind of low point for, for the Reformation is just, it, you know, it's interesting, the Roman Catholic Church always said, well, if, if the ordinary person gets a hold of the Bible, well, then they're just going to read it and interpret it for themselves, you know, mm. horrors. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> um, and, um, because of course, for a Catholic, it's the church that tells you how to interpret the Bible, how, to, you know, what the correct interpretation is, and the Pope makes that decision um, for you. And, um, you know, in some ways, they're absolutely correct. That is exactly what happened. People began to read the Bible for themselves, and they interpreted it for themselves, which is, is great, because, you know, we have the Holy Spirit to, to guide us. It didn't mean that everybody got things right. Right. Um, there's some pretty radical um, people who, who come up with some pretty crazy things, a group of radical um, Reformation people who, who take over the city of Munster and decide that that's where Jesus is going to come back to. And they practice polygamy and decide their leaders are reincarnated, you know, prophets. And wow. And it, and it's nuts. They, yeah. they go to war and, and are, you know, it's, it's a crazy story and it really dishonors the name of Jesus in lots of ways. Mm. Um, but that's kind of a low point, but even I, I think the other one is, um, you know, you have to, you have to remember that these guys were, they're real people, you know, Luther is being like, and we haven't talked about Calvin, but you know, these are real men and they've got real, um, same kinds of things that, that we have. Uh, and, and kind of the two real low points for Luther, is he writes a couple of um, things that are actually quite horrible kinds of writings. One is against the peasants during the peasants' revolt, where he basically says, yeah, go ahead and kill them all um, wow. because they shouldn't be rebelling. And it's, it's quite a terrible thing. But even worse almost is uh, toward the end of his life, he writes a treatise against the Jews. And... Um, and there's no other word for it than, you know, it's inexcusable. It's really inexcusable. Mm. Um, he, his reason is that he's very disappointed. He, he had thought for sure that uh, they would all come to faith mm. if the truth came out. And of course, that didn't happen. Um, he's very disappointed by that. And uh, so some of the things that he writes about the Jews are just appalling. Now, he's not anti-Semitic. Mm-hmm. He's not against them as a race. He's against them because they won't come to Christ. But unfortunately, some of his writings end up getting taken up you know during the nazi era for example right and um Luther held up as a hero by by the nazis and that's a real shame yeah and and you know yeah. they make a bad a really horrific situation even more horrific and it's just like man if we 
and, and that should be such a, a reminder to us to walk faithfully in the truth in all aspects, even if we don't understand what's going on, right? And, you know, even though he wants to see salvation come, you should realize, all right, I'm going to trust God's timing on these things and not my own, because yeah. then him leaning on his own understanding uh, leads to a horrific chain of events hundreds of years later. Um, yeah, that's yeah. And I think, you know, the reformers got to the end of their lives and I think they uh, thought that there would be a great deal of success with the Reformation. And it's not always as successful as we like to imagine it is. Um, Luther was always annoyed by his own congregation who didn't always seem to get what he was trying to, to say. And so to be able to make that change very quickly um, was not something that some of them were able to do that easily. And I think um, sometimes the reformers were a bit disappointed in their followers that they didn't always get it and it didn't um, change everything as quickly as they would have liked. So as we look at this, so we, we talked about kind of hinted and, and talked about how um, later the, the Nazis would, would misuse um, Luther's, some of Luther's low points and even some of the things that we still hold to today that they would use that to justify some of their uh, aspects, some of his theology and take, you know, some of the good things he said, but then mix in some of the bad things and say, you know, here we go. And we're going to run with it. And we see that happen, you know, how many years is that 430 ish years later? Uh, how long did it take hmm. for Protestants and Catholics to stop attacking one another over these works? Oh, <laughs> well, it depends on where you're talking about. If you're, if you're talking about uh, um, Catholics versus Protestants in Northern Ireland, it really only stopped just a few years ago. Mm. Um, so, you know, those kinds of uh, sectarian uh, battles are, are quite recent. In terms of, of those actual uh, times, though, um, you know, I think, I think we don't really get um, how it was that people saw the world and they really did believe that their rulers had the right to, to make that decision about what kind of, of um, uh, religion you as an individual could have. And so um, soon after Luther's death, the, the emperor uh, decides to kind of act militarily against the, the Protestants and he, he starts uh, fighting them and they're having to either flee or defend um, their cities, their Protestant Lutheran cities. And it's not going to be until about 1555 that um, there's a, something called the Peace of Augsburg, which said that each territory could decide, the ruler of that territory could decide what they were going to be, either mm -hmm. Lutheran or Catholic. And it was kind of a, his the rule is the religion kind of um, phrase hmm. and um, people. So it didn't really matter what the common person wanted. If the prince wanted to be Catholic, you were Catholic. If you wanted to be Protestant, you were Protestant. It brought a peace, not a real long lasting peace, but a type of peace to, to the region after that. Um, in France, however, wow, the battles for uh, between Catholics and Protestants would go uh, all the way to the end of the, the 1600s, there are nine wars of religion in France, wow. pretty much wipes out a lot of the, the uh, French Protestants known as the Huguenots. And it would continue really until through um, Louis XIV, um, just into the beginning of the 1700s. So um, France was really a battleground. And of course, that a lot of the French Protestants just, would, they were either killed or they would flee. So we have the remains of that in, um, in certainly in America, you have it in Australia, some South Africa, a lot of French um, refugees fleeing uh, from that. And England um, has not so much the, uh, the, the, 
Protestant versus Catholic, except in Ireland, um, but they're going to have their own types of wars of, of religion um, between various branches of, of Protestantism. So certainly for a couple of hundred years, we're going to see those those kind of um, battles going on. Mm. And, he, and just like you said, I mean, as, as recent as the Northern Ireland, the troubles happening, um, yeah. that's, that's, you know, living memory. You know, that's yeah. people who have lived through that and seen the, the horrors of what that can cause. And then if you go back a uh, hundred years before that in the U.S., you had New York City being a battleground between uh, Protestants and Catholic immigrants who are coming to the United States and fighting in the streets or fighting yeah. out West as they went out to settle and saying, well, this is a Catholic territory. This is a Protestant territory. You know, it's very fascinating to see that this, wow. this has gone on. Lyman Beecher in in the Second Great Awakening is is actively preaching against Roman Catholicism at that point. And even even today, I was just teaching my my ninth graders about sectarian violence here in Australia. Um, that certainly was the case in the eighteen mid eighteen hundreds here. Um, Anti Catholic um, riots that were that were happening in in places like Melbourne. Um, a lot of a lot of Irish immigrants coming. Well, there were a lot of Irish convicts that had come to Australia because we we're a, um, originally a convict settlement. And uh, so, you know, they saw the Roman Catholics as being, um, you know, criminals, basically. Wow. <coughs> Excuse me. No worries. That is absolutely fascinating because you, we want to think about the Reformation. We think of Luther, you know, nailing or not, you know, those theses to the door. Uh, and then we're like, all right, and that's the Reformation. But you see that this, how it stretches out for so long, how it impacts so much and how it impacts us today even in so many various ways not just in the things we believe or sing about in church uh, and and how we study and, and communicate scripture uh, but even how it affects you know geopolitics and how it affects you know legislation in states or in, in different countries because the the history of violence is there um, that all seem to start kind of around this center uh, issue and, and and martin luther this guy so what are some of the ways you think that the Reformation continues to impact us today uh, outside of kind of what we just talked about? Yeah, I think outside of, I mean, we can think about it in terms of our own churches and, and the kinds of churches that we're in obviously are um, impacted by that. The fact that we can read the Bible <clears throat> in our own language, um, that we have a clear understanding of the gospel. But but broader than that, I mean, there were, there were as you say, massive impacts societally. Um, you know, I don't think we would have anything like a democratic kind of government were it not for the Reformation. The Reformation, uh, it, it didn't have as, a, as its intent to give sort of individual autonomy. I've, I've heard people sort of explain the Reformation that Martin Luther was fighting for the rights of the individual. That's certainly not what he was fighting for. He would have had no concept of that. But what it does do, because it does say um, the priesthood of all believers, that each person has the ability to read the Bible for themselves, there is that sense of uh, individual um, freedom that is going to take hold. And I don't think that we would have the kinds of government-free Western um, democratic governments that, that we have were it not for the Reformation. I think education has been largely affected. All the reformers were, were very keen on establishing schools and universities. Uh, the first Protestant university is founded in Geneva under John Calvin. And, um, and all of them are going to establish, establish schools. So that's going to be a key thing. And I think music and art actually are also going to be affected because you see that, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> all of life is um, seen as worship. 
Mm. So the everyday ordinary events of, of life <clears throat> are celebrated in art. Um, people like, <clears throat> sorry, but got a bit of a tickle in my throat at the moment. No worries. <clears throat> um, people like Rembrandt, the Dutch painter, mm. um, paint the everyday ordinary scenes from, from life. A lot of the Dutch artists who were very much affected by the Reformation. And the idea there is that um, there isn't a secular sacred divide. There aren't parts of life that belong to God and parts that are sort of for the world. And that all of life is lived under um, God's sovereignty and under his rule. And so we can, we can paint um, the daily life of a family. We can sing about um, things that are going on in our world. And I think that comes out of the Reformation. Yeah. One of my, when I studied, uh, when I was in high school, I was in AP European history and we did an art segment. One of my, one of my favorite parts was, was those Dutch masters who were coming in at that time frame. And the reason that they're painting masterpieces is because they're like, wow, I'm allowed to paint ships in a Harbor. I'm allowed to paint merchants talking about doing business because God is a part of all this. Whereas beforehand you see uh, in the Renaissance, especially in the Holy Roman empire, uh, right before the Reformation is the Renaissance kind of wrapping up, but it's all holy and righteous figures, right? It's, you know, the slaying of Goliath by David, or it's, you know, Jesus on the cross with these brilliant rays coming out of him. And that's where art was confined to was to the church more or less. Uh, but now all of a sudden you're seeing an explosion of art into everyday life. And so I think that that is a great point of like, look how much this has touched and how much it's changed our culture and how much it's changed the world. And it yeah. started with one guy standing on his beliefs, you know, f flawed as he was, you know, he's got, he's human. He's not, uh, he's not Jesus himself, right? He's not perfect, but uh, he stood for what he believed in and it had incredible uh, outcomes. And so if, if you could go back kind of as we wrap up uh, this confirmation, this confirmation, conversation on uh the reformation there we go it's a fun little tongue twister as we wrap up the conversation if you could go back uh and and tell martin luther kind of one thing about this domino effect what what would you say to him um well I, you know I, I think luther had no idea of the impact he was going to have i mean he had no idea that it was going to split the church um <clears throat> in the way it was and i certainly wouldn't i wouldn't warn luther to um to, against what he did, you know, I think mm -hmm. it was absolutely necessary for Luther to have done what he did. I, but I, I think that I would, um, I would try to encourage him to, to see who he could um, work with. I, you know, I think mm -hmm. that one of the problems that that certainly could have been helped is if if the reformers had been more collegial, more uh, willing to say we have so much in common, and we're at a time that's really crucial. Um, I think. You know, when when you're holding to those key faiths of of a key truths of salvation, justification by faith, <clears throat> what a blessing it would have been mm. for him to have worked with with um, people. And you know, after Luther, um, we do see some of that um, as people have to flee Europe and end up in England. We see a lot of the European reformers ending up in England, working together to um, to bring reformation there. And I think I think that would be one thing that I I would say, and I, I think I'd also tell Luther to be realistic about the results, you know, and to mm. give God, um, you know, <laughs> time if you like that it's it's under his it's his timing. Um, I think that that would be a couple of things that I would I would say to Luther and 
you know, not to be so grumpy. He was a bit of a grumpy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I always say to my students, you know, I love Luther. I have so many Luther things around and, and I love reading about him. I have a whole bookshelf that's, you know, a whole book person uh, to become, but they're exactly the kind of person that God sometimes uses. Um, but he uses other kinds of people. Luther, uh, Calvin was a completely different kind of person and God used him too. So what not it great that God uses all kinds of people to accomplish his purposes? And um, that could be us. Yeah, so. absolutely. Well, thank you so much uh, for this conversation on Martin Luther on Halloween, on All Saints Day, All Souls <laughs> Day, um, and the importance of October 31st and the importance of November 1st and, and, and how it's impacted our life today. I think this is a really cool conversation. And I think when we go back and we look at some of the great successes of those who have come before us that can encourage us to stand uh, on faith alone, you know, and we can do no other and then talk about these things and, and then also look back and see some of those low points and think, all right, how can we avoid that today? And how can we, yeah. you know, join hands with one another, just like you were saying, uh, and work together? And how can we uh, understand that God's timing for salvation of all nations and peoples is his timing. And we get to play a part in it, you know, and, and not make some of those mistakes that, that Luther did later in his life. And so thank you so much for helping us understand more of this conversation and for joining us all the way from Australia and, and staying up late for us to, to have this conversation. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah, I, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for tuning in to this production from Sand Hills Media Ministry. This episode was produced and hosted by John Dayback. Audio mixing and camera work by Sean Wigner. Post-production by Eric Wigner. Special thanks to our guest, Shelley Vivian. Our song is Same Blood Instrumental by King's Kaleidoscope. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us through liking, subscribing, and sharing on your social media. It does more than you know to help and fuel this project. If you'd like to know more about Sandhills or join us on a Sunday, you can do so at sandhillschurch.org.